Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Liz from Foundation for Change. Welcome to this podcast. Um, we don't have any fancy jingles, so I'll just let the rest of the team introduce themselves. Hi, uh, it's Bex here. I uh, work for Foundation for Change. Hi, Hi. I'm Sonia, um, Foundation for Change team member also. Hi, um, my name's Heather. I'm the same, yes. Also one of the same, Bob Barrage. <laughs> I'm Katie and I work for Foundation for Change as well. So you might have gathered that we all work for Foundation for Change. Anyway, um, very happy to welcome you to this podcast. And in this one, we're going to be looking at relationships in recovery. And this topic was suggested to us by one of our listeners, actually. And we thought it was a good idea since relationships, and it's usually romantic relationships, but also it could be friendships, relationships, tend to be the things that we see that, you know, can really trip people up in their recovery and cause people quite a lot of trouble so uh it also seemed really appropriate right at the moment because i'm guessing that during lockdown um you know many people will have felt really lonely and felt like they wished they were in a relationship uh, with somebody special or maybe you know people have been in relationships and um you know wish they were in a relationship with somebody else and and you know and on a serious level also you know people will have been trapped during this time in really abusive relationships however it's not this is not a podcast about domestic abuse because there are really really many excellent resources um from fantastic organizations um who offer support around this and we'll list them on the uh, we'll list some of these on the website page that accompanies this podcast but I, with this podcast i just wanted to go back to the sort of basics and think about what makes relationships so difficult in recovery? I want to start thinking about codependency and intimacy and actually think about why it is that recovery is such a, a tricky time for people and to end with looking at the things that are within our control to help, you know, to help stop being pulled into codependent relationships so easily and talk about ways of finding healthy relationships that people can, you know, hopefully get get some advice around that so um sort of i just wanted to very briefly kind of uh sort of start with a bit of a personal um bit of a personal kind of story about how i um i sort of realized i couldn't take heroin any longer and i wasn't very happy about that and sort of somewhat reluctantly kind of got myself to a drug service and um and I was also using heroin with, with heroin with somebody else. I was in a relationship with somebody and we both used heroin. Um, so I encountered this pretty straight talking drug worker, which was kind of helpful. And she sort of, she rather bluntly said to me that I was in a codependent relationship. And I didn't have a clue what she was on about. Um, I wasn't very happy about it because I just thought, oh God, there's something else wrong with me as well. Um, you know, being an addict um, felt hard enough. And then somebody was telling me I had codependency. So, um, and I don't think, I don't know. I didn't even sort of find out what it was. I just thought, oh, it's something else that's wrong with me. Um, so, and that really pissed me off. And I just wanted to ask, uh, dive right in and ask the rest of the team kind of um, when they first encountered the term codependency and how they understood it. So over to you. Nobody knows what it means. <laughs> I'm, try I'm trying to sort of um, think when. Well, as, as you were talking, Liz, because um, I've always, um, well, 
when did you was your question uh when was the first time we've encountered codependency? The, 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 when did you first kind of come across the, the term? Because oh. the term is used a lot in recovery. So I just wanted to kind of like just think about how people encountered it. So for me, it would have been in the next group, which was um, Psychology for Change, when I first sort of heard the term and learned about what it was. And what did you think? It, it may, um, when I looked into it more so, um, it made me think that I've always been in codependent relationships with relation, um, partners and friends and probably family as well. Yeah, so, um, yeah, totally codependent. It's not, it's not nice. I can feel myself going all hot just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it's the same as Tonya. Like, I, I've always heard of this word codependent and codependent relationships. Um, and I just took it kind of like for the idea that uh, I know there's a bit more depth to it, but literally you just need your partner. Everything um, you kind of like lack in yourself, you kind of need to get that from, yeah, friendships, who you might be dating, if it's a relationship. Um, and I think I thought of it really simplistically. Um, and it was basically yeah you feel uncomfortable being on your own so you have to find kind of like somebody else to exist with well i don't think that that is pretty much you know that it, it is that simple really but yeah <laughs> not spoil it spoiler alert it is that simple really but yeah, as you as you're talking you can kind of see why it causes trouble for people yeah in recovery it's you know difficult definitely. i guess uh, yeah the same i i i would have I'm trying to I was trying to kind of remember and think back and it must have been when I was also like when it first into like drug services and had a support worker who I would see really regularly and got to talk about stuff with her that I'd never really spoken about with other people and her kind of reflecting back to me things that I'd said uh, about how I thought about myself or how I thought about other people and and the relationships I had with people in general um and kind of like shining that light on 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 something that I'd never really thought about or questioned and uh, yeah having like a different aspect of looking at at relationships of why and the how and 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 even the fact of like you know the the positive and negative and uh, if they're serving me you know if, if they're healthy for everyone involved, which I'd never really looked at before. Yeah. I think this is also really interesting because for me, like I didn't hear about codependency until I was working in the sector. I worked in the sector for a bloody long time, I was 24 and I joined, so basically like, I've grown up in the drug and alcohol field. Um, so, so yes, it's just like a lot of my knowledge has come from there, but what I'm, thinking, what I'm hearing is really interesting because people haven't encountered it until they go into treatment, but actually, this isn't something that is only applicable to people in recovery. No. You know what I mean? Like it's a term that actually like everyone should know because it applies to everyone, but it's like only people in recovery tend to find out what it is. And actually it's so valuable to really pick apart. Definitely. And it's kind of, oh, sorry, Higgs. Um, uh, definitely. It's kind of like, you know, you sort of understand, you have an idea of what this word is, 
before you go into recovery. You know it exists and you know it's a thing which is kind of like about kind of, you know, lacking self-worth or whatever it is. But I think Heather really nailed it. And it's going into recovery, being challenged. Um, and yeah, I think I was just like really shaking my head violently at Heather there, kind of agreeing, <laughs> agreeing violently. Oh God. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say there was a reason why I think before I didn't think it applied to me because my understanding of it was it was something to do about needing to be in a relationship and that wasn't something I ever felt. Um, and I happened to be in a relationship when I came into recovery, but it was really like I didn't think I was dependent on that person and yeah like I just thought codependency was like really depending on other people um and I think it was in doing the next course at Foundation for Change that I realized that's not quite it like it can be depending on other people but it's broader it's kind of like really needing external like validation of, of any kind and not just from a person and like that was the big revelation for me yeah, you've spoiled, everybody just spoiled my whole podcast now <laughs> by, uh, tell, you know, by explaining codependency be uh, beautifully. But I wanted to dive into codependency because, you know, it's, it's the really useful theory um, around, um, you know, relationships. So it, it, let's start there. And look, I'm really sorry. I mean, I kind of apologise to anybody listening and to my team that I just can't really sort of seem to help myself going off on some kind of historical um, diversion and giving a chucking you a bit of kind of rambling history and theory in so um, here I go again and actually I wanted to tell you all about Karen Horney so um, Karen Horney um, maybe is that a little loud is this deliberate? Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. This is a very, this didn't work then. No, try, try. <laughs> so we haven't got a theme, any, a jingle, right. I'm going to suggest that. But um, Karen Horney, okay, I'm going to tell you about Karen Horney, um, which just makes me laugh in a really juvenile way every time. Um, have any, has any of you come across Karen Horney before? No? She's, she, she's a funny figure. Um, she's, kind of she's kind of very American. They're, Americans are quite kind of into Karen Horney, as they are into Anna Freud, actually. Any, some of you, Bex, you just about to say? Uh, no, no, I wasn't. Um, I, I know not, um, but I know who Anna Freud is. <laughs> <laughs> you know who Moose Tea is, though you probably didn't know it was Moose Tea. You did horny, horny, horny. Um, when that came out, I was DJ and um, I had to play it about three times. And I was DJing at a really particularly horrible nightclub, which will also remain nameless. And this nightclub kind of was one of those like, you know, nurses come in free kind of, you know, before girl, ladies free before 10 o'clock type thing. And uh, I'd have to play horny, horny, horny about three times a night um, as the kind of dance floor would go wild with the, 
very drunk women. Um, so there you go, it just tickles me. Sorry, I've got a juvenile response to Karen Horney's name. Anyway, she's a very serious lady, so, and very interesting actually. So she was, she was a really early psychoanalyst, born in Germany in 1885, and kind of, um, she lived till she was, uh, she lived until 1952, so fair innings. Um, she was one of those really early people that kind of you know kind of came across Freud and really loved this idea of psychoanalysis and and the unconscious got excited about it and she was one of the founders of the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute um, and this was in the early 1920s this was set up and I, I mentioned that because it, it's it's a really it's got its whole like really interesting history as well because it was very radical and it treated people uh, for you know it gave people therapy for free then and it was it treated like lots of men and women which is also kind of the radical thing about them and um, also treated lots of people who were unemployed um, in Berlin at that time and yeah incredibly poor so that they were on a real kind of mission to um, bring kind of therapy and psychoanalysis to very kind of ordinary uh, you know poor people and the other interesting thing about the Berlin um, Psychoanalytic Institute was the amount of women that worked through there at the time. So um, these are kind of real big names of kind of psychoanalysis like Edith Jacobson, Anne Reich, Menley Klein who, and Karen Horney. And they all kind of worked there at various times. So Karen Horney taught there till 1932 where and she kind of gets really kind of concerned about the rise of Nazism and fascism in Berlin or Germany sorry and then and she also kind of starts to get really critical of Freud and kind of you know challenges lots of Freud's ideas so she in 1932 she was she moved over to live in Chicago and then um, a couple of years later she moved to Brooklyn where she uh, in 1934 she so she kind of continued living in Brooklyn for the rest of her life and I think there's a kind of museum in Brooklyn a um, Karen Horney museum in Brooklyn um, and so the during so, so during the period of her work she sort of becomes what's known as a uh, a neo-Freudian and that just means that rather than kind of thinking people's personality development was all about those kind of those drives that we we have talked about before with ego defense mechanisms she was very sort of of, of the opinion that of the greater importance of kind of social and cultural factors in the development of personality um, and she, she's a really I, I kind of decided I think we should do a whole podcast on her she's really fascinating and in 1935 she wrote an essay called the problem of feminine masochism um, and um, this is kind of really kind of quite you know ahead of its time because she sort of wrote about cultures and societies encouraged women to be dependent on men to receive love to receive status, to receive wealth, to receive care and to receive protection. And, you know, sort of just talking to, 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 to certainly quite a lot of the women we've worked with over the years, um, that has very much, you know, been why they've stayed with men because that's how they've recognized they can have a place in the world. And so that sort of feels like a very contemporary way of, you know, that feels, feels like it's something that's relevant to um, today as ever so and then you know horny would sort of suggested that women are trained by society to please and satisfy and overvalue men and she developed this thing called feminine psychology 
uh, which challenges challenged Freud's kind of idea of penis envy and said that actually men have womb envy and because you know men actually really really envy women's ability to bear children and bring life into the world and and that men actually overcompensate for this feeling of not being able to create life or to give birth through the importance they place on achievement success so that's a bit of a diversion i can't but she's she's a really interesting character and what she's talking about sort of has i think a lot of relevance for um certainly kind of heterosexual relationships that 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 you know struggle today um but to go back to her sort of sort of basic sort of theories and ideas uh, karen horney's kind of theories are very relevant to codependency and i think quite a lot of the theory of codependency comes from her work she identified what she called basic anxiety or basic conflict and she, she described this as the feelings that children develop if they feel unloved unvalued or insecure as they're growing up so you know we kind of recognize that that has a lot of correspondence with um attachment theory and you know lots of therapy sorry and schema therapy as well yeah totally yeah i mean this kind of idea of like these feelings that you can kind of have as a child that you can't really articulate to the, to, to yourself can embed themselves as a sort of anxiety um that you carry around for life yeah um so Karen Horney says that to cope with these insecurities and conflict that a person might experience, they, they sort of develop ways of coping as what she calls neurotic behaviours that they develop. And these neurotic uh, needs are for power, prestige and affection. So Karen Horney said that she categorised these three needs as you know, you have these needs for, for power and, and prestige and affection. And she, she categorized the needs that needs that move you towards others. And she says that these neurotic needs cause individuals to seek affirmation and acceptance from others. They're often described as needy or clingy as they seek approval and love. The second lot of kind of needs, or the second category of needs, is needs that move you away from others. And Horney says these neurotic needs create hostility and antisocial behaviour. These individuals are often described as cold, indifferent and aloof. And the third set of needs she identified were needs that move you against others that these neurotic needs result in hostility and a need to control other people these individuals are often described as difficult or domineering or unkind so um that that, that kind of those kind of three kind of types of behavior that, that people adapt to manage their kind of basic anxiety that Horney describes, they pretty much align with the kind of personality types that are identified in the many, many, many um, books on codependency that have been published in America, especially since the 1980s. And um, so I think, you know, like lots of people know Melody Beattie's um, 1986 book, Codependent No More. I didn't realise it had sold 8 million copies. Oh. So, you know, it is, it is out there. And also, this just tickled me that Robin Norwood wrote a book, wrote the book Women Who Love Too Much. Have you all heard of that? No, I haven't. Haven't you? Okay. No. A 
feel like it's one of those books that you know I kind of kept I encountered lots of people who are reading women who love too much but she sold quite a lot of copies of that and then she's kind of it was a little industry because she went on to write letters from women who love too much daily meditations from women who love too much and my personal favorite is I just love that I don't know why her, her book called why me why this why now um so I think there's a you know there's a sort of big industry a veritable industry of people who are codependent on codependency books in america um seems to be a sort of very big thing there and um they all also that you know around codependency there there, there there is lots of kind of um kind of medicalization of it you know, where, where um, if you kind of literally Google codependency, you come up with like prognosis and symptoms. And as I, I would suggest that it's not a very useful way to think about codependency because, you know, if, if somebody is kind of traumatized by events in their childhood or, you know, just kind of um, quite disassociated with themselves, if somebody has a kind of tick list of symptoms, I think it, it, it's easy to just go, oh, yes, I've got that, 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 that. And not, you're not looking at the root causes, you're not yeah. addressing where they came from. Yeah, which is exactly what kind of, you know, when I, my drug worker said, oh, you've got codependency, I'm just like, oh, and another thing, you know, I've got codependency now. I didn't actually dig into what that actually meant, which, you know, Heather describes so beautifully. It's like, it, it describes your whole being and relationship to others. Um, so... Um, a quick question. So you said yeah. like, she talks about those three... You know, he described it so kind of towards others, against others, and, yeah. and others, and how that aligns with codependency kind of theory yeah. and literature. Is is codependency like more focused on the towards others thing? Uh, yeah, it tends to be. But and I, I think it's interesting because, like you know, the, the book titles like "Women Who Love Too Much" would would yeah. give you know tell you everything you need to know really about like what what that book's about. Um, and I think a lot of kind of ideas about codependency about like, oh, I'm people pleasing. I'm, you know, I just want people's approval. I always kind of fall in love and do all the emotional work, blah, blah. And I think quite often overlooked are the different types of code, you know, which could be described as the different kinds of behavior, um, codependent behavior, which are the, um, the kind of, I don't have wants, needless wantness. I'm going to cut myself off. Mm. and also controlling you know people and that's 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 the toxic domestic abuse relationship that, that you know that, that you often you know hate to be so sort of i don't know heteronormative or something here but you know it's often like the woman who's kind of you know cares too much and the bloke who is controlling and and actually that controlling behavior is codependent because all of those behaviors rely on a measurement to another person mm. your your esteem is like i'm better than i'm not good enough or you know i'm not part of i'm in kind of i'm aloof because i am better than ultimately mm. that makes sense to all yeah it does and i think that's um kind of like where i was kind of thinking oh i remember codependency being a bit deeper because uh, yeah okay it, there's a lot of onus on it about being on the other person so you get what you need from the other person but actually it, it really is just about kind of the individual as well it's about you isn't it it's about kind of who kind of like you know your self-esteem you, you, you kind of all of the 
components which make us us, you know, attachment theory and everything like that. It all lies with us. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, because when you were talking about descriptions, I was, I'm always curious to think, like, I'd love, like, these old school psychologists to exist today and to kind of, like, get their take on things like Facebook and I mean, particularly kind of social media. But when you were talking about, like, this whole kind of being driven towards other people and this, what you said earlier about kind of this need for prestige or this need for affection, like, think about people who do Facebook updates and who will change their picture like every kind of four days so they will just have like 42 comments saying babes you look amazing you know so this is kind of <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> maybe somebody that i knew in the past um, but i think uh, you know i think that's there's this real thing driving that where the person is so dependent on the validation from others so i mean of course they are people but it's happening in this kind of digital form mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's just like you can get your sense of self, your sense of validation, your sense of kind of like esteem coming from how other people see you. And you can kind of manipulate that, particularly on social media. Yeah. And, and the, the, there's, you know, I think there's also kind of, I mean, you're right. It, and then Katie made this point about it, you know, you don't have to be in a relationship. It's about a relationship to yourself. Mm. This is the whole point here. I mean, like, you know, big, bold letters. It's about the relationship you have with yourself. So, of course, the relationships you have, be they friendships or romantic relationships with other people, are really volatile if you're constantly measuring yourself against people because you can't control them. You know, even if you're kind of quite passive and people-pleasy, uh, to use that kind of term, you you're still trying to control you're trying to be a nice person so people like you you're trying to kind of go oh, yes you look great babes you know because you want somebody to like, think you're a nice person it's all kind of controlling behavior and it's all trying to control you know around you where it's not looking in at yourself not being able to control yourself yeah um, this is this is really interesting because it resonates with something else that um i experienced quite early in my recovery like being challenged by a a therapist about the type of people that I seem to gravitate towards um as sort of being in need themselves quite a lot and needing a lot of help and I saw it as like but I'm you know I'm helping people get sober I'm helping spreading the message I'm helping you know I'm taking people to meetings I'm I'm like you know I was helping people (laughs) um, and she was pointing out, like, yeah, but you, you often are, like, there's something in you that is driving you to, to seek out those kinds of people and form relationships with them. And that it's this, like, need to be useful and to get my self-esteem from that kind of thing. And, that, um, yeah, to be cautious about it, I guess. The need to feel needed. Well, the other, do you know what? The other thing I was kind of, I was sort of writing out the hand that to accompany this, and I, I kind of wrote those three Karen Horney kind of need, kind of need kind of drivers um, down, and it struck me that also it corresponds quite uh, nicely with the Cartman drama triangle, the kind of you know the kind of aggressive get your needs met by being controlling mm-hmm. the persecutor, get your kind of needs met by being aloof. I it's nothing <laughs> with me. I am the rescuer or the you know the victim kind of why me why now why this um but you know they actually correspond with with those those kind of needs that horny writes about so i was really interested in in i don't know if this is too much of a leap the other thing i'm thinking about is kind of what katie's saying about of course it's relationship to self 
And I'm always really interested in like, what, is pe- what are people's relationships to drama? Because the drama triangle is just like all three of those positions. They're obviously kind of like looking for something that's control or looking to kind of like get feel needed or, you know, looking to kind of, um, what is it? Victim, rescue, persecutor. But um, something about like, what is your relationship to drama? Because even that can be a really dysfunctional relationship. So drama isn't a person, it's a thing. Yeah. But can you, would you say you can be codependent on drama? Well, if you think about, like one of the things that you know how useful it is to kind of use diagnosis here but you know one of the things that people with pers- uh, uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder what used to be called borderline personality disorder you know one one of the kind of characteristics of that is that constant drama because the self mm. you know the sense of who i am is really shattered and fractured. So there's like constant drama reinforces this sense that you're in the middle of some universe. You're Mm -hmm. not, you're in the middle of a universe of fucking nothing. But you know, nevertheless, things always happen to you, makes you feel like you're important in some way. And I think it's really, yeah, I think it's really related. Um, well, that, that also detracts from you having to think about yourself because you're, you're stuck in dramas about for other people. Mm-hmm. And you absolutely don't have to stop and think about yourself or you. And that's, you know, that, that's that whole thing of like having outside influences to try and fix what's ultimately broken inside, whether you acknowledge that's there or not. You know, it's it's having those that need to kind of like be validated um, for other by other people purely, you know, for your own um, self worth, rather than yeah, like looking looking at those needs to to fix yourself. You know, other people can't fix you. But then it's like we're in a society where we're being sold stuff constantly, and we buy stuff to help us be part of and be accepted you know and especially as as women a lot lot of the things that you were saying about um uh to do with the codependency is very much what women's roles in society are expected to be so it's it's kind of that double you know having lots more messages to do with how we're supposed to behave and how we're supposed to be in society uh, and what will ultimately save us as opposed to us just fucking sorting ourselves out yeah 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 i mean and 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 you know you, you touched on something like we can be codependent on not you know inanimate objects as well like hello i'm feeling you know miserable i know i'm going to go shopping you know i i, I kind of do it i see it i see people kind of coming out of you know if i'm going through westfield on the uh underground you know i kind of back in the day when when we were traveling but you see people kind of coming out with huge amounts of kind of clothes in bags and it, you know it's a it's a make make you feel good purchase isn't it not yeah like you need a pair of joggers or whatever you know it's kind it's of quick 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 fix yeah it is doesn't actually fix anything and then going it comes right back to the to the to the individual as well and um um the relationship they have with themselves so and you know you could you can kind of you can really see like um i was just thinking that you know imagine if you've given up drugs or alcohol or both you know in a way you've had a relationship with that substance that's that's been something that's been able to i wouldn't say fix you but 
suppress feelings or get rid of feelings <clears throat> and actually if you kind of suddenly take that substance away um people are are well you know on a kind of you know um on level of kind of neurotransmitters that they're, they're kind of that they're, they're they are in a stage where their brain is kind of i guess help me out here what is it doing it's kind of homeostasis it's kind of balancing isn't it if you've given up substances your 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 kind of um neurotransmitters will be uh, reforming connections and so on yeah be be calibrating or something calibrating yeah. <laughs> <laughs> equilibrium the rest of you you can just fuck off you left me <laughs> there. Anyway, but what I was going to bring in, and I don't want to kind of spend, cause, you know, we could just kind of go down this kind of rabbit hole and spend forever there. But it, it's like the idea that you kind of got rid of some substances, but then there's this substance which is oxytocin, which is, you know, the, the cuddle hormone or love drug or whatever. And actually, that is a, a hormone that exists to kind of reinforce um early attachment between mothers and infants as as well as kind of romantic you know sex partners isn't it so kind of we need it to kind of keep the species going um and there's there's this is this fantastic and, and it's about communication actually because i came across um this research that they they kind of do this research on prairie voles now since none of us live in a prairie probably don't <laughs> they, they, so prairie voles look like kind of attractive mice they're kind of fluffy but you know they're rodents they're, they're pretty mice yeah um but the the thing about prairie voles is that apparently i don't know nothing i didn't know nothing about this until a few days ago prairie voles are monogamous so if lady vole dies the male vole doesn't look for a new lady vole um he just kind of you know dies of a broken heart exactly and and the really interesting thing about vole, <laughs> these prairie voles is that they they don't just kind of you know have sex together and kind of mate because lots of, i think quite a lot of animals kind of mate for life don't they like lots seahorses yeah so but they're pair, apparently prairie voles <laughs> they've been studying them and they're really into like the social they're, they're, they're into hanging out with each other and they don't just come together to have sex they they have a lot of kind of social interaction with their monogamous partners so not you know it's not i'm not sort of saying oh yeah everybody should be monogamous but they're, they're studying these voles and what they've kind of worked, worked out of course is they've got kind of high levels of oxytocin or you know like it, they've just got loads of love drug pumping around them that's why they're 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 with each other um and um but it applies to like hugging your mum or like friends and again like in this time where we're not a lot of people not getting physical touch such an important thing and, and there's studies some people probably know this but the studies done in dogs so if you're stroking a dog like your oxytocin levels go up and the dog's levels go up at the same time so our dog there's a lot of oxytocin in my household with two <laughs> really cute puppies i said i just wanted to make that point it's like you know you've given up a substance you're yeah. not having your kind of how your how your feelings are you know, you're not being able to kind of change your feelings or suppress them say and so it's 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 totally understandable that you want to fall in love. I mean, you, you know, either just have sex with loads of people, but also I can remember really wanting to fall in love in early recovery because I liked the feeling of romantic love. It, it made me feel better. You know, Change how you feel. Yeah, I get obsessed with people and imagine I was in love with them. And actually I was just changing the way how I felt. 
Um, you know, I was realised convinced I was in love with certain people at certain times because it made me feel happy and I didn't have heroin to make me feel happy. I had the thought, and it was as, as powerful. I don't know if you, oh, sorry, go for Katie. Katie. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that it, I still find it interesting to go um, back to this thing about relationships, though, because I, I, that's definitely not something I feel like. When, when Bob, you mentioned your dog, I was like, grimacing. <laughs> I'm not a dog person. And, like, I also, like, I'm very fine being single and being um, independent in that way. And I remember like people sharing about maybe not getting into a relationship and early recovery like it was this really hard thing and I was like what that is easy like there's no way I'd want to get into a relationship um like particularly early in recovery and I this is why I think Hornsey's idea is really interesting that there's also this need of like withdrawal a bit and something about asserting your independence or kind of like having your need met not by a person as almost being a need in itself like that need for independence mm. Mm. yeah I mean I I, I was thinking this sort of same thing really I'm I came out of like a, a really long 10-year relationship um when I came into recovery like just came out of it and um yeah I mean like kind of like I, I suppose in in some form I'd lost my family but I definitely remember not so much wanting a relationship but wanting that comfort I actually think it was almost kind of like needing um some sort of comfort um and yeah I you know I I, th I think back on it a little bit and I definitely tried to find comfort in whatever ways I could um and you know our, all of those ways were obviously completely destructive at the beginning of my sort of recovery journey um but they were just this way of kind of going oh my god I'm lacking something which is giving me uh which which kind of like held me um it made me feel uh, kind of like whole it was kind of like you know a with want of a better word, it was my family. Um, and so just being completely spun out of control and missing that security and that safety and needing to find it in any way. Like, I always thought I wasn't very codependent, even coming into the start of recovery. I, no, I'm not that codependent. Oh my fuck, was I codependent as hell? Um, and it was quite destructive, um, some of the things that I would do to seek gratification. Um, or kind of like, yeah, just that feeling of, of, of security and, and comfort. Which we need. Mm. You know, we need comfort. We're, we're driven to seek comfort and we're driven to kind of move away from discomfort. It's really normal, but I think it's kind of where, where and how we're finding it. Well, that's a, a, yeah. I mean, just listening to you speak now, all of you speak, I guess it's, you know, a different way of understanding codependency is like, not being comfortable with yourself yet still still seeking comfort either from others or from solitude or from trying to control others or you know other things okay i mean you know let's take it away from people just like about you know altruism or or, or looking after others you know caring for us it needn't be that romantic relationship as far as I know as well I can I can kind of remember also getting really really like messy about friendships in recovery as well like them feeling really passionate 
and you know having really kind of ridiculous kind of strops at people who I wasn't romantically interested in but that were were, were friends and you know I don't know if anybody has that same had that same experience as well or has that same experience was that would you say that was a drama thing Liz or was it that it just felt like such new territory I think it's it felt like such new territory yeah I can't, you know, I can't, it's like suddenly being awake or something. It's such a sort of, it, it's such a strange feeling, I think. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's so, you know, as I said, I, I wanted to sort of think about why, you know, people in recovery are particularly vulnerable. Um, you know, time begs you. Well, it was just kind of like something just popped into my head and it was about, I suppose, my codependency with drugs. Because actually what happened is I felt like I functioned like top notch on um, on on opiates. Like, I, I, you know, I could get up, I could like accomplish a day, I could get the hoovering done, I could do this, I could write amazing, I could do some lovely art. Oh my God, I could do it all. Like, uh, you know, I just was on it. It really helped me function. And so all of a sudden, giving up the one thing that I thought, obviously, towards the end, it didn't help me function at all. <laughs> Just add that. Yeah, like, obviously, this <laughs> ends one way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, towards the end, it was just like, there was, you know, I was going to die. It was as simple as that. Um, but, you know, what it took away, once again, is this um ability to kind of be like oh my god i've actually got to rely on my, myself and my own ability and like i it's not kind of like this mask of being it because okay you know i used to kind of work in some kind of like industry which is kind of like costume and everything and it helped me kind of drugs just helped me kind of mask who i was and and be able to kind of you know function in, in in an industry which i found quite uncomfortable for many different reasons so i really actually now i'm thinking about it oh my god i did not know who i was i was a ghost of a shell of a person when i gave up drugs and um completely um codependent like i'm no understanding of who i was as an individual person because everything i i felt like i was good at was done or or i was able to do was done under the guise of taking drugs um and yeah i still battle with that confidence and i still have that codependency now because you know even being like seven or six years into recovery um i'm still kind of trying to um find figure out kind of like i i don't know find authenticity in who i am and be able to confidently say this is who i am and this is what i can do and i can't quite do that so i have to find other mechanisms i suppose to cover it up it's like a massive uh, yeah um self-confidence lack of self-confidence if that makes if any sense yeah, I kind of agree with pretty much everything you said. I, I kind of felt felt the same, and I, I think when you've got take had that kind of like the, the, that crutch specifically with, to do with heroin, that does give you that cuddle feeling, that does give you that warmth and that safety blanket. And and when you haven't got that, and you're questioning everything that you thought you knew of of your, of your life, and that involves questioning your relationships with people, and there and there are a lot of relationships that you've got with people that you have through your drug taking that you have to change because they're really, really toxic. They're really like unhealthy for you to be 
in recovery to be able to kind of function without that crutch when there's people around you that are still in, in that world so you're kind of like having to question all of your relationships and how healthy they are and how well they are towards your you know your your state of mind and and so it's yeah it's a lot of you're questioning everything to do with your thinking you know and it kind of just does pull the rug out from under you for a bit and you just yeah you don't know who the hell you are you know because you've made your mind up what what you are and you're kind of you know and now you're like you're you're kind of having to find yourself again and find new people or reassess your relationships you have with your old friends and it's a lot of change and that's really really scary it's also kind of quite um well I, I certainly found it quite embarrassing to not know who i was in my late 30s you know i felt like a teenager going i don't know who i am um, you know who am i and and sort of overthinking things exactly like i did when i was a teenager so you know it, it felt a bit shameful i think Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like, oh, I've given up drugs. Well, that's it then. You know, I'm kind of sorted. It was a big surprise that then there was this whole, there was this whole amount of work that's ongoing, which is, you know, like, who are you? And it's been a long time, right? But it is like, I didn't know that that came next. Nobody told me I had to work out who I was. And also kind of questioning, like, why are those things difficult as well? It's this kind of Gabor Mate thing, which I can't take credit for. I have to just name drop him. But um, who kind of says, you know, there's this whole thing that he does about addiction and his whole kind of spiel in that little um, interview he's doing is kind of saying, like, you know, the drug's not the problem. The addiction isn't the problem. The problem is, like, you know, why were those things driving? You know, what drove you to the addiction in the first place? And it kind of sounds really obvious. But I think a lot of people don't kind of, like recognize that because i think what most people prioritize is just putting the drugs down because they're killing you like you were saying bets like you were like on death's door of course that's a really important part but then this whole kind of like next chapter begins which is kind of understanding like oh my god i really struggle with social situations and like i really you know substances are my coping mechanism and why do i find them so difficult there's this whole kind of internal questioning of like you know, not everyone's like that. Like, why am I like that? Why do I need this crutch? I think the word that hovers above all this is also intimacy. You know, why do I find it so difficult mm. to be intimate with people? I don't mean, you know, sexually intimate. I mean, you know, emotionally intimate. So mm -hmm. I was going to ask you also, you know, I kind of started asking you about codependency. Um, what are you, what, how did you encounter the word intimacy? What do you know about this? What, what does it mean to you? Well, moving on from kind of what we were talking about, I guess I have massive issues with intimacy, and I guess that would come down to the trust thing. Sometimes, like not being able to trust my own kind of sense of relationships or people, um, and and feeling that. Yeah, it, intimacy is something that is is t too difficult, <laughs> and it's easier to kind of push away. But then you know, it, it is still learning. It's not like you kind of stop taking drugs and then you found yourself and then that's it. You're cured now. It's it's like it's constantly relearning stuff. It's constantly questioning, uh, and 
And so the kind of whole thing with relationships and, and intimacy is, is like a constant ongoing thing of questioning myself and my, and my thoughts and my feelings. Kind of similar to that, I always see intimacy as kind of two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, I, I think it's incredible. It's exhilarating, I think, to be really seen by someone, to allow yourself to be seen for all of your cracks and your vulnerabilities. And I think it's one of the most incredible things. But then there's that flip side of the coin, which is kind of, it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's really, really scary to be seen. It's really scary to expose yourself. It's really scary to feel exposed. And those two things always go really hand in hand for me. And it's like, I don't always, if I'm in a situation where I'm kind of struggling with that, I don't think like, oh, but remember the other side of the coin. It's not as simple as that. Uh, I know it exists. I've, I have intimate relationships. And, and I think it's not a case of like, you have an intimate relationship and it's just constantly like that. I think it's something you work at. Um, and there are moments of intimacy and moments of not, but um, it's tough, it's hard work. And, and I also know that that comes from somewhere. Well, as as, as um, Heather was talking, I was thinking, actually, you know, a lot of time things that have happened to people we work with who have, go on to have trouble with, uh, or have, you know, um, uh, drug and alcohol kind of addictions a lot of things have happened to them that really break that trust with themselves and others in early childhood and I mean you know it can be sexual abuse I mean that that kind of shatters some kind of um, trust in your own kind of understanding of what's happening I think but it needn't just be that I think you know one of the common things that we've probably seen everybody work with are kind of really traumatic experiences um, early on that you know lead people to both question their own self and their own take on things um and it might you know it might be as something as, as quite commonplace as divorce you know parents having a really really you know um uh, you know toxic kind of divorce, divorce or a toxic relationship and if you think about kids are told like oh it's all right mummy and daddy are you know whatever you know it, it, it it's been like being lied to it's like being gaslit isn't it you know from an early age often so people being able to trust themselves is is one of the real components of intimacy and you know and of course trust others you know but it is like i once again i think it comes back to that relationship to to, to yourself and trusting yourself that what you see is is what's happening and i think relationship to self in the sense of being able to soothe yourself yeah and kind of tell yourself like it's going to be okay because i think that's the other thing with people with kind of very damaged relationships to self it's just like the, the voice inside which is very um catastrophic or do you know what I mean kind of like I think like if things are tough like actually like if you have a solid or a healthy relationship with yourself that voice is kind of reassuring you rather than beating you mm. yeah and I just you know it's interesting listening to you all talk because I think up until I think the age of about 25 I didn't whenever I kind of got into my first serious relationship, um, I didn't know what intimacy meant. Like people would explain it to me and I would be like, what, like, what are those feelings? Like I, it was so abstract and um, I had to learn intimacy and it is, it's kind of like being able to trust yourself and being able to 
also trust other people. Um, you know, I got so scared the first year into my relationship that I, I buggered off to Europe for a year. I just, I just did one. Um, because I was completely afraid. Um, I was afraid. Whilst you were still in the relationship. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I darted. Um, because I was just scared because it was getting, I was starting to feel this thing called intimacy. I was starting to feel like trust was beginning to grow. And, and what happens when you have trust with somebody and you don't trust yourself, you're worried that that trust is gonna be broken. So you just break it yourself. Um, Okay, after I came back on my merry travels, we came back together again and something had switched in me. Like maybe I had kind of like, I don't know, kind of learned something about myself in running away that every time I break something so it doesn't break for me, um, I'll never give anything kind of like, not a chance, but you know, a, yeah, a, a freaking chance. Yeah. I, 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 I... Um, yeah, I was writing. I was actually, I was writing notes when you're talking because one thing that struck me is that actually, um, oh gosh, lots of people ex express a feeling of, of feeling like a um, an imposter, like at any minute they're going to be discovered. And I think as you're talking, I thought, well, that's really about a relationship with self, isn't it? And trust in self, because mm -hmm. you know, actually you know, if you don't trust yourself, you think you're going to be exposed as some I don't know what, you know, terrible person or whatever, or just as somebody that's just, a, you know, an imposter. And, and, you know, loads of people, you know, are really great at stuff and you can kind of say, oh no, but you're really good. And it doesn't land because it's that really fundamental relationship with self and not trusting self that is somehow damaged. I was going to ask you, and I haven't, I haven't got notes for this at all, so, you know, let's go. Uh, what are the things that um, can really help, you know, man, sort of mend that relationship with self and, and then kind of help people be more, I guess, emotionally, you know, have more emotional resource or something to be able to have healthy relationships with other nice people, be they romantic or friends? What do you think, what do you think can help people? I would say, um, like, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and getting to be, like, vulnerable, getting to be in a place, like what Rob said, you know, it is really, really, really scary. If you never go there, you're never going to know. So, you know, I, I think it would be that thing of, of, yeah, doing stuff that you find terrifying and seeing, seeing what happens. Can I ask about doing stuff that's nice as well? Because I think, you know, the, the, the potential is that you just put yourself in a kind of re-traumatise yourself by having like this horrible kind of like, ah, you know, sort of sense of being at the very edge of your own comfort. So it's, it's really important to come back into what is comfort, I think, as well. Yeah. I know this is, um, me and Heather are quite similar. We've had kind of like, you know, relatively sim uh, similar lives in, in some respect. And I know that what works for both of us, and that is craft, art, being able to express yourself um, and doing it kind of like quite freely, you know. Um, so I think a lot of kind of, you know, I do it at the moment just in lockdown and it's really helpful. Um, 
it just helps you be able to give your give a voice to something that sometimes you can't necessarily give a voice to for me there was something about recognizing i guess it's a similar thing of like when people say or oh, don't rush into relationships some kind of like abstinence or staying away from the kind of stuff that you recognize you have a codependent relationship with so for me it was work actually and it's why I feel really passionately about how unhelpful it is to force or, or like really rush people back to work when they're recovering from addiction because it's just another way to escape yourself mm. and like being really yeah like forcing myself to stay away from the kind of work that I was doing when I was really in my addiction because that was also how I was trying to seek a sense of self and it wasn't healthy and like learning to live without that as well as without alcohol and like feel the, the stuff that comes up which was confusion maybe I'm not worth anything like what well, well, I've got no direction like it wasn't easy but I think I did have to learn to like live with myself as I am in the moment not attached to this job or this degree and it's you know it's not like I never do things again like I'm working now and I've done a degree and things like that but it was important for me not to rush into that what else I found I, I was just thinking now is like what those things that you're saying about kind of wanting to be liked and all that kind of stuff I, I found it really like empowering or liberating when I was told about boundaries and having having those boundaries so being able to kind of like put boundaries down with people that that felt really difficult to do but once I'd kind of done them it was very much like it was for me it was for my own kind of keeping around people that were kind of supportive and 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 take take and kind of like giving boundaries to people that were just kind of like taking a lot or or weren't necessarily a positive thing and to do that and it'd be really uncomfortable to do that but then being able to kind of like live with those boundaries in place for other people to respect me better that i couldn't really put in place before or didn't know how you know to ask or want to have certain respect of people and not being taken, not being treated in a certain way and expressing that. Yeah. Um, I was going to say for me, there's a couple of things. I think the main thing is I hear a lot in, that in recovery, people are told to sit with their feelings. And I always get the feeling that like when people hear that and then they do it, I always get this image of kind of someone sitting there with their like face grimacing or they're like biting a block of wood and they're kind of like fingers are wrapping around the chair like they're just waiting for the feeling to be over and I kind of just think like no it's not about just like hoping for it to be over or kind of like surfing the urge and all that kind of stuff like for me there's something about being a bit more inquisitive about your feelings like check in with like okay I'm feeling something what is this about what you know what feeling am i trying to change why do i want to change how i feel like what's going on here and i was thinking like i've been in situations in the past where i felt really lonely and so i've just been like swiping the hell out of a dating app and striking up conversations with guys that i wouldn't ordinarily just give a fuck about but it was because i was lonely but that could have just got really messy if i allowed myself to really go there 
probably a couple of times I did. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like, I think there's just something about just um, trying as much as you can to just think about like, okay, what's going on? Like I'm feeling something or I feel like I want to change how I feel, whether that's food or whether that's sex or whatever. And, and kind of trying to just get a sense of like, oh, what, trying to pin the feeling, what's going on. Pin it, pin it to something. Absolutely. I mean, I think this, I mean, I, I need to wind up here, but I think, you know, one of the things I wanted to do was codependency is a really useful way at looking at relationships, right? But, it, you know, it's important to, I think, apply a sort of psychological mindset to it. And what you've just been describing, Bob, is what I describe as a psychological mindset of like, okay, look, let's look at this. Let's see what's going on with me. And let's look at, you know, my responses and, and, and other people's rather than it just be, um, as I started off at the beginning of the podcast saying, another thing you've got. And it's like, oh, I've got codependency. Oh, that's terrible. You know, actually, dig. I just encourage people to dig deep into that and to, you know, ask those questions about their own responses and who they are. And that builds a sense of a stronger sense of self. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to magically happen like somebody's going to give you like a fairy wand and go, there you are, you know yourself. It's a process of kind of asking those questions. And that's what, I mean, I think lots of people come to us and do courses with us because they think psychology will give them the kind of the solution, if you like. And it doesn't. It just gives you loads more questions. Don't want to put anybody off, but there you go. Psychology, just a load of really difficult, bloody questions uh, to ask yourself. But within those kind of, you know, moments of asking yourself, then you get to know who you are. And then by magic, you start having lovely, intimate relationships. So we'll... Can I really quickly tell you? No, no, no. Really, really quick. It's one of uh, Bob's top tips. Um, it's kind of connected to what I was saying, what you just said, picked up on as well. I think there's just something about the more you get to know yourself, the more your choices in your life become, um, I'm stumbling now because I'm under the pressure of time. Uh, the more that your choices become something you want to do, it's a word that's really hijacked in the yoga world. They talk a lot about intentionality, um, you know, being intentional. But, I, you know, there's real value to that. And like the most simplistic way of looking at it is like, are you doing something because you need to do it or are you doing something because you want to do it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so like if you're on a hookup app, um, hook up app and you know, you're doing it, you know, it's kind of born as a need, you know, like the likelihood is you're going to feel like shit afterwards. Whereas if you're kind of, it's maybe not the best example, but if you're just kind of doing it, you know why you're doing it, you want to do it, you own it and you're probably not going to feel a shit afterwards. So. We'll end on that swearing. Yeah. Big and clever. Um, so can we all just say goodbye with our lovely outro music? Not. Oh, I, I was expecting horny, horny, horny. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.